Genesis chapter 4, verse 17. The Word of God says, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he had built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah bore also Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we want to call upon the name of the Lord. Lord, I'm just reminded of Romans that says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. God, we have come today after experiencing a variety of things this week. And Lord, I just confess, uh, I feel very weak and insufficient for the task of preaching even the good news of Jesus today. Lord, we we are weak and unable to grasp onto these profound truths that you want to teach us today. But by your spirit, Lord, We pray that you would grab a hold of us. God, be honest with us. May we be honest with you in your word. And would you teach us, Lord, all of us, even individually, the things that our hearts may not want to hear, but need to hear. Strengthen us by your word and by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, imagine you have a friend, uh, had some friends spend time overseas. Um, and, and so imagine you have a friend who spent some time in the UK. They loved their time in the UK. They adopted uh, much of the culture and the lifestyle in the UK, so much so that when they come back to Carpinteria, they refuse to drive on the right side of the road. Okay, and they're adamant. This is the way driving was meant to be. It's so much better on the left side of the road. It's so much better on on that side. You all, you all should do it. And they refuse to drive on the right side of the road. It's a silly illustration, but let me ask you this. Would you ever get in a car 
with someone who refuses to drive on the right side of the road? (laughs) No, absolutely not. Because a collision is inevitable. You're going against the laws of the land. And so when we go against the laws of the land, when we go against the customs of culture, collisions and friction are inevitable. Now, if you're following Jesus, and you've followed Jesus for any length of time, it kind of feels like driving on the left side of the road. We see the way culture is going. We see the lifestyles. We see the ways that people are living. We believe that God has called us to live differently, to believe differently, to worship differently. And we leave our houses and we may have good intentions in our minds that this is the way we should go. But then we get into the workplace or we get into culture. We get among friends who don't have the same uh, theology or ideology or, or ideas of morality as we do. And it feels like we're driving on the left side of the road. Everyone's going that way. And we're just dodging and swerving, trying to avoid a head-on collision. So many Christians and churches today are pressured to conform to culture. Culture would say to you today, turn around, fall in line. You're going the wrong way. You're on the wrong side of the road. So many of us feel pressured to approve the things that have never been acceptable to God or to reject things that God never approves, all for the sake of missing those head-on collisions, all for the sake of avoiding the discomfort of the reality of driving on the wrong side of the road. It's a clash of cultures. The Christian culture, the, 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 the American culture, just the world culture, human culture, they don't fall in line with one another. So the media right now loves to talk about the culture wars that we're experiencing at the extremes of the right and the left are at each other's throats. But the real culture war didn't begin with Trump. It didn't begin with Biden. It didn't begin with COVID. It didn't begin in any of our generations. The real culture war at the heart of everything that we are experiencing as human beings, it begins in Genesis chapter four. This is the beginning of the culture war. No matter what side of the political spectrum you are on, this culture war, the battle lines of this war runs through every human heart. And here's the the truth of the matter. Every single one of us today, whether we are aware of it or not, will make a decision before you leave this room about what side you're on. Every single one of us. But in order to talk about this, we need to understand, okay, what is culture? What are we talking about when we talk about culture? I've heard it put this way, and this has been really helpful for me. I don't know who said it, but it has been said that nature is what God makes. Culture is what humans make. So God makes the world. He makes everything in it. And when human beings organize and shape 
the things that God makes, we make culture. So God makes human beings. And when we gather in cities and we organize governments, we are making culture. We are taking what God has made and we are making culture. When we take what God has made in terms of light and, and color and sound, and we make art and music with it. We arrange the notes. We arrange the sounds and we make music. We arrange the colors and we paint. We make pictures. We make art. We take from what God has made and we make culture. Until Genesis 4, we are following a single family, Adam and Eve, who have children. And we talked last Sunday what happens between their kids. Cain kills Abel and is uh, forced to wander away from the presence of God. But in our text, we see members of that family beginning to go their separate ways. And we watch their generations develop into different cultures. We start with Cain's family. And we start with the culture that he builds. His family builds a world without God. So remember, Cain kills his brother and God forces him to wander away from the presence of the Lord. So he goes away from God's presence and he builds a city outside of God's presence. He marries a woman, most likely his sister. Don't let that weird you out. That's the way things were back in the day when your family was the only one on the planet. He marries a woman and they have a son. His name is Enoch. And then a couple generations later, we are introduced to Lamech, uh, a, a direct descendant from Cain and Enoch. And then Lamech's kids are responsible for three significant cultural developments. The first one is the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Now, you know, maybe that just goes right over our heads, but think about this. Animal domestication and animal breeding allowed for human beings to resist the nomadic lifestyle that was driven by hunting and gathering and allowed them to stay in one place together longer because the animals were a source of food, they provided food, and they also were, uh, were, were beasts of burden to do the work for them of plowing and agriculture and all of these things. And that is a significant cultural development that allowed, allowed the human beings to dwell together in the same city for a period of time and develop culture. The next son is the one who is the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. These are musical instruments. Music is a significantly important part of culture, not only preserving culture, uh, uh, but also uh, changing culture. I think about uh, the music that was written in and around the Vietnam era. That, that was so powerful in the hearts of people as they, they, it, it met them where they were and gave them language for their laments, for their experience. It's like the book of Psalms for the Christian church, that it gives us language for our prayers. And so music is an absolutely significant 
part of culture making. And then the, the other son is the forger of instruments of bronze and iron. Now we don't think of this in the, this term, these terms oftentimes, but tools are technology. Okay. Very primitive form, but it's technology. Technology is anytime we apply scientific knowledge to a particular task. So a lever system or a pulley system is technology. I find it very funny that oftentimes people will associate technology with the line of cane. And so they reject technology, but they're cool using a hammer. It's technology. They're, they're fine with music. That also came from the line of Cain. And they love dogs. Domesticated animals. So we, we, we pick and choose these, oh, technology bad because it's aligned with Cain. But I mean, like, your puppy? No. And so we, we have this, this idea that for some reason, technology and these things, since it's associated with the line of Cain, it must be evil. That's not what the text is saying. The text is not saying that technology is evil. It can be used for evil. Absolutely can be used for evil. But it is not inherently evil. And yet it's not, even though it's not inherently evil, this culture that's created by Cain in this text does promote wickedness and violence. Okay, those, those, those are not the same things, but we see culture shaping away from God these things are being used apart from God and it results in hostility and greed and the glorification of sex and violence. Okay, Lamech is identified as the first polygamist. Okay, he's got two wives. This is what happens when you add greed and sex. You have just take all that you can for yourself. He's exalting himself. He is pursuing his desires. He has turned the partnership of marriage into something that suits himself at the expense of his wives. And he celebrates violence. He kills a man for a minor offense. And instead of Cain, who swept his sin under the rug, Lamech sings a song about it. He, he boasts in his violence. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. Okay. It's a, and then, and then goes on to say that, you know, God, God told Cain that he would avenge him sevenfold. God's weak. I'll avenge myself 77 fold. I am 10 times more able to avenge myself than God is able to avenge me. Arrogance right? The boast, the, the, the violence, the, the greed, the lust for power, according to this culture developed by Cain and his family. Now, this is our culture. Our culture is one that glorifies greed and sex and violence. It absolutely is. It is a culture that is founded away from God. Most significantly, our culture is just as self-reliant as Lamech. Right, Lamech says, God, you're weak. Tevin, a sevenfold vengeance is nothing. I am better off without you. 
I will avenge myself. And so the culture that we see humans creating for themselves apart from God is one that believes it is better off without God. This is the culture that we live in, believes that it is better off without God. And our culture would be very happy if you would just stop talking about God. Everything will be okay. Look, oh yeah, believe whatever you want. Okay, I'll uphold, I'll, I'll vouch for freedom of religion as long as you keep your mouth shut. Don't, don't tell me about your faith. Don't let your faith start dripping into the public square. Keep it to yourself. See, our culture actually loves spirituality. Our culture is very spiritual. Um, There's all kinds of appreciation for uh, the spirituality of the universe. And as the, the, the thing I like to make fun of a lot from this pulpit is crystals, right? Shiny rocks, right? We love our spirituality, but don't you dare give it a name. Don't you dare try to give God a name because if you give God a name, you give him a personality. And if you give him a personality, you give him a voice. And God's not allowed to speak into our culture. You can believe he is whatever he is, but don't you go telling me what he says or what he requires of me. My culture, my world is apart from God and I don't want God in it. See, our culture likes God like they like phones in movie theaters on silent. God, keep your mouth shut. Don't tell me what God's word says. Don't try to speak into my life. And you, if you're a believer and you have interactions with people who who are not following Jesus, you can experience the same kind of shame that comes over people when their phone goes off in a theater. You know, like the phone goes off in the theater or in church and it's like people just like, ah, they roll their eyes, right? It's the same thing. You're at a party and you're like, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Ah, it's the same kind of annoyance. They don't want it. Keep your God on silent. Don't let him speak. And here's where the conflict arises in our text. See, Cain's culture is a world without God. But God doesn't let it just go like that without any sort of check. See, Adam has another son named Seth and Seth has a son named Enosh. And it says at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Uh Uh-oh, God has a name. And there is a people amidst a godless culture who are calling upon that name in prayer and in worship. And so this God will be a part of shaping a new culture among humanity, a counterculture to the wickedness of Lamech's culture. This calling upon the name of the Lord develops a culture that is a people who are desperate for God. Adam has a son named Seth. Seth has a son named Enosh. Enosh actually means frail. Weakness, frailty. 
Contrast that with Lamech's arrogant boast of his ability to avenge himself. Seth names his son Enosh because he's aware of the weakness, and the frailty of humanity. And it's this frailty of humanity that causes Seth's line to call upon the name of the Lord. In a world that is without God, they are desperate for God to move. Our world is a world without God. Our culture is a culture without God, built upon self-reliance and the glorification of greed, sex, and violence. And will there be a people who will call upon the name of the Lord? See, the conflict in the world today, it's not political, church. It's not. It's spiritual. Both the left and the right, apart from God, are able to be just as self-reliant as Lamech. Both the left and the right will compete and fight one another with arrogance and violence. The hostility that we experience is is not just because we seem to be so opposed to one another ideologically, but it's because we are opposed to doing things the way God asks us to do things. And we fight the political fight with human vitriol and not the grace of Jesus. See, this spiritual culture war It cuts through all of our hearts. It doesn't matter how you vote. If you are not dependent upon the Lord, calling upon the name of the Lord for your strength, for your salvation, for your very life, the natural flow of culture will take you down a path of self-reliance and violence and greed and arrogance cuts us through our very own hearts. And God's people have always struggled to engage in this battle. We've always struggled to know how to engage with the culture around us. There are four attitudes historically that the church has had toward culture. The first one is despising and abandoning the culture. Okay, this sees the culture as evil, Your neighbors are unclean. They must be avoided. And so we we leave the culture. We leave the cities. We leave the communities. We abandon them. We move to places that are holier, where there are people who think more like us. Holy places like Florida. Texas and Idaho. I don't want to diss anyone who moves away from California, but I do want to call out the fact that the culture war exists there too. Okay, just politically it might look different, but it's there, cutting us through the hearts. The next attitude toward culture is reflecting the culture. 
See, this sees the culture as always neutral all the time. And so whatever happening, whatever's happening in culture, we can go be a part of that and reflect that culture. The church is like a mirror and, and we just do the things that culture is doing, but we do it for Jesus. And we tell people about Jesus along the way. This attitude often sacrifices reverence in worship and reverence for the truth of God's word and the legitimacy of God's word and the inspiration and authority of God's word. It sacrifices reverence for relevance. We just want to be relevant. We just want people to see that we're not so different after all. Wrong. If you have the Holy Spirit, you are a new creation. You're not like them. You're not like Cain. You're not like Lamech. And we hide the beauty and the value of the gospel and the presence of the spirit in order to be liked by them. In order to be accepted by the culture. We reflect the culture and lose our distinctiveness. The third is fighting the culture. This is like uh, believing that the church is like a fortress in enemy territory. And so we, we hunker down and just like blast the culture through tweets and, and political uh, means and, and, uh, protests and boycotts and things like that. We use worldly power, Lamech power to fight against Lamech culture. See, just still running through our hearts. This was the, the way the Holy Roman Empire engaged in the world. Think about the Crusades, the Inquisition, uh, aspects of colonization, Right? The, the, the convert or be conquered mentality. It's using worldly power and the threat of death in order to proclaim a kingdom that's supposed to not be like the one they're trying to call people out of, but they're using, it's using the same methods. It's not just the world out there that is, that is prone to these things. The church has been prone to operating according to Lamech culture, Cain's family's culture. The fourth attitude that we often have is to use or ignore the culture. Maybe you don't uh, despise and abandon the culture. You don't isolate yourself from the culture, but you insulate yourself from the culture. You, you know, you're, you're here, you haven't moved away, but the only time you engage with the culture is when the culture can provide something that you want. You know, ooh, I hate this culture, but I really want to go see that movie. Oh, cult, I, oh the culture. Oh. But, you know, Meta just offered me a great job. I'm not saying it's wrong to work for any corporation. But we need to be aware that we're just using the culture when it has something to offer us instead of actually being in the world, but not of the world, which is what the church is called to be. So we're all tempted to fall into one or more of these attitudes. 
And they're all the ways that the church has engaged with the surrounding culture over the centuries. But these attitudes are going to fail to produce the fruit that we long for. Um, continuing by, by these methods are never going to change the, the spiritual tides and culture. And here's why. It's because, like I already said, it's, it's using the tools of the world apart from God to try to call people into a kingdom with God. We're, 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 our, our, our methods are the same methods as the culture. And so we're just perpetuating the same self-reliance, the same attitudes, the same culture. And we're just saying that we're doing it for Jesus. But all of them rely on the same self-sufficiency because we don't like, we don't like being desperate. We don't like being in need. Frailty, uh, weakness is not a value in our culture and it makes us uncomfortable. See, I think this is the real reason that those four attitudes are the way we typically interact is because they're all based in discomfort, right? The culture makes me uncomfortable. And so I'm going to abandon it. And I'm going to find a culture that makes me more comfortable. The culture makes me uncomfortable. And so if I can't beat them, I'm going to join them. And I'm going to reflect the culture. Because if I reflect the culture, there will be less head-on collisions from driving on the wrong side of the road, so to speak. And so, you know what? I'm just going to turn the car around. I'm going to drive on the right side of the road, but I'm going to do it for Jesus and have two completely different destinations. It's because of discomfort that we reflect the culture. It's because of discomfort that we fight the culture. No, I'm not going to shut my mouth. You shut your mouth. You need to start, you know, believing differently. And we attack and we try to change the culture through, again, the same uh, means the power that is recognized by the culture, political power and persuasion and wisdom and all of these different things. We use the same tools of the culture we're trying to wake people up and out of. And the reason we insulate ourselves and use and ignore culture is again, because of discomfort. I don't like these parts of culture, but this thing that it has that is offering me, I like that. So I'm going to go participate in that because I can be comfortable doing that. And so it's the unwillingness to be uncomfortable that causes us to engage with the world in these ways. But what if we stopped looking for comfort in our own little Christian cultures and started living like Christ in culture? What if we stopped trying to create little bubbles or find other bubbles that we can move into where we can be so comfortable in our own little lives and our own little worship and our own little churches. And we come to church to be encouraged and to feel good about ourselves. And the minute we're made to feel uncomfortable, I'm, I'm going to go find someplace else where I can be comfortable. I'm going to go find a different bubble. I'm going to go find a different place where I can continue to be comfortable. But what if we stopped looking for comfort and we started looking for Christ in culture? See, at the incarnation of Jesus Christ, there was a cultural invasion. The king of heaven left his throne 
and his glory to step into a world without God, a world that was broken and suffering and grieving and lost apart from him. And he stepped into that world, not to make it a place of where he could be comfortable, but he embraced weakness and poverty and desperation and violence and abuse and, and humiliation and crucifixion. And he knew that that is what he was stepping into. And yet it was his joy to leave heaven for earth, not so that he could uh, come here and operate in worldly power. Jesus didn't become a Pharisee or a Roman magistrate or a Sadducee or someone that had a place in the world, but he was outcast from the world. He lived a, a life of suffering and, and misunderstanding and obscurity and abuse. And he didn't take sides. Look, there was a political division in Jesus' day as well. They were called the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the conservatives and the liberals, and they both hated him. They both hated Jesus. Why? Because the Pharisees were Lamech culture and the Romans and the Sadducees were Lamech culture. It was a culture apart from God, even though they professed God. And Jesus comes into that and they hated him. He's too liberal for the conservatives, too conservative for the liberals. And he suffered at the hands of a hostile culture. Hebrews 5, 7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. In other words, Jesus called upon the name of the Lord. Jesus, in his weakness, in his frailty, in his desperation, he pressed into his Father in heaven. He called upon the name of the Lord and was delivered from death. And so the way Jesus saved a self-reliant, self-centered culture was through self-sacrifice. So that Romans 10, 13 can say to us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus came to a godless culture, not to make us comfortable, but to call us into the kingdom of God. And this creates a fifth way of engaging with culture. It's not abandoning it or reflecting it or fighting against it or ignoring it. The fifth way to engage in culture is to love and serve people who are far from God. This is very different than any of the other four ways. This will feel like driving on the wrong side of the road and it will make us uncomfortable. To love and serve people in weakness will make us significantly less comfortable than preaching at them with power, shaming them in our tweets. Our, 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 our world, our Christian culture right now is, is uh, talking a lot about revival. There's a lot of conversations about 
revival. It's not on the mainstream media, but if you've read about uh, you know, things at Asbury College and other colleges in that area and other churches, there's these special, uh, what people are just calling like the presence of God in a really sweet and peaceful way, falling upon his people as they, as they praise and worship and, and pray and repent. And, and there's just this really, there's this sweet thing happening in pockets across our country. And it's made many people begin to talk about, could we be on the cusp of another great awakening? Add to that the, the success of the film Jesus Revolution and people are remembering the Jesus People movement and what God did in Southern California and across the country in the 70s. And people are asking, Lord, would you do it again? God, would you do this again? Would you bring revival again? Um, but I don't think we really want revival. I'm just going to be, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I don't think the, the, the general Christian culture in America, I'm not saying individuals in this room, but generally I don't think we want revival because when revival comes, people get uncomfortable. It's being confronted with your sin and repentance. It's not comfortable. Having people come into your church who uh, look differently than you or vote differently than you or think differently than you or practice things differently than you or speak languages different than you is, is not comfortable. The most heartbreaking thing, I, I went and saw Jesus Revolution this last week and the most heartbreaking thing for me was that when all of the hippies were coming to church barefoot and, and dirty and, and, and were accused of being stinky and all of these things, uh, there were people in the church that got up and left. And they missed one of the greatest spiritual awakenings America has ever seen. They missed it. Why? Because they were uncomfortable. They didn't want to be uncomfortable. It's not a bad thing to be comfortable. But let me ask you, if church stopped being comfortable, would you stop coming? If it stopped being comfortable because of the people who were here or because of what God was, was doing, would you, would you stop coming? What if, what if coming to church was against the law and you could be punished or there were hate groups that were targeting the church? Would you still come? Is the gathering of the body of Christ for worship on Sundays as God has commanded in his word, is it important enough to you to risk being ostracized by the community at large? If it was uncomfortable, would you come? If it was filled with people who voted differently than you, would you come? Hey, just newsflash. There are people here who voted differently than you. Deal with it. Jesus is bigger than that. This is a place for all people. What if the church filled up with immigrants who don't speak English? So it was hard to communicate with one another. And maybe we were encouraging people to learn Spanish so that we could interact together as the body of Christ or like, one of our choruses and our songs was in Spanish. That's not my language. That makes me uncomfortable. Would you still come? 
What if it filled up with people with addiction or the unhoused in Carpinteria? People with need, very obvious need. That's going to make a very clear demand on your time and your finances and your comfort. Would you still come? Would you still come to a place if people different than you that you don't necessarily associate with were coming here and meeting Jesus? What if, uh, what if um, employees from Planned Parenthood started getting saved and they didn't know what to do about their job? What if the transgender community starts meeting Jesus? Who are the outcasts among us that are not welcome here because we haven't made them welcome here because we have expected them to make themselves uncomfortable to come to church when we could have made ourselves uncomfortable so they could be welcome at church? Are we operating like Lamech or do we recognize our frailty, our weakness and welcoming weak people in this world to be just like us. This is not a place for Christians. It's a place for sinners. But this doesn't mean that we just like wink at sin and, and, and don't just like let sin run rampant in the church. That's the fear. Every, you know, this, this idea that, well, if we let people in, then how are they going to know that they need to repent? Because the gospel is being preached. See, if, and if you're here, don't misunderstand me. This is a place for sinners. It is not a place for sin. Okay, Jesus did not say, your sin is okay, I love you anyway. He said, your sin is forgiven. Go and sin no more. But church, people have to be, they have to know that they can come in here just as they are. You have to know that you can come in here just as you are. And in your weakness, in your frailty, in your desperation, God will never turn you away. God will never turn that away. Come to him. Those who are burdened and heavy laden, he will give you rest. It is not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. Wouldn't you rather be uncomfortable if it meant those who are far from Jesus were welcomed into his presence? What if we actually looked like Jesus? And sometimes that feels a little out of reach. So I'll say this. What if we looked like the apostle Paul who said in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, and when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. See, we, we resist discomfort because it makes us feel weak. And church, I think that's the point. I think the discomfort that we experience in life because of our sin and the brokenness of the world is supposed to make us feel weak. Because when we are weak, he is strong. 
It's through weakness and frailty like Enosh that the power of God is experienced. And so the text says that when we embrace our weakness, it produces prayer, calling upon the name of the Lord. Jewish commentator Nahum Sarna says that it is the consciousness of human frailty symbolized by the name Enosh that heightens man's awareness of utter dependence upon God, a situation that intuitively evokes prayer. This is the primary difference between the two cultures of Genesis 4, and this is our way forward. In a culture that is dependent upon what we can do for ourselves, it will always turn to greed and violence, but a culture dependent upon God will always turn to him in prayer. If we depend on our own strength, we'll just try to get control. But if we recognize that we're weak, we cast ourselves at the feet of Jesus. And so what we need today is a counterculture that is desperate for God in prayer. Church, if this is how we respond to this, we recognize that we are weak, that we are powerless to affect the culture around us apart from Jesus, and we cry out to him in prayer. So I want to close with an exhortation and an invitation. No matter who you are or where you stand with Jesus today, if you want to experience the power of God in your life, if you want to experience the love of the Father, the grace of the good news of Jesus Christ, the power of the Spirit, the forgiveness of God, then stop running from your frailty. Stop running from your weakness. Stop trying to be strong enough and embrace the discomfort and powerlessness of your humanity. Apart from God, you can do nothing. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And we will have a moment to do that here uh, in just a second. But I also want to invite us to commit to prayer. Jim Cimbala, in a book that has been very influential for our culture here at Reality Carpenteria, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, said that at one point in his ministry, he had to make the decision to stop prioritizing Sundays and start prioritizing the prayer meetings. He said, I, I, didn't, I stopped counting the people in the seats on Sunday because if people would pray, if people came to pray, then I know that God was doing something. And so listen, church, we've got opportunities to pray. And some of us are comforted by knowing that the people of God are praying. But I'm calling you to pray. Okay, tonight, 6 p.m. Okay, right here. We are praying our faces off because we are broken and weak and we need Jesus. We're going to lift our voices and worship the one who is Lord. Jesus is Lord. The Lord, he is God. We are going to call upon the name of the Lord. And I just, I want you to come. Okay? No one's going to make you like pray out loud or, or anything, but wouldn't it be sweet to be a little uncomfortable and to, 
talk to God with the body of Christ tonight? Come and and pray. Every Wednesday morning at 7 a.m., we're here praying. Yeah, I know you're tired. What a great way to remember your weakness. Okay, when you're tired, you're weak. I brew coffee. We have coffee here. Don't like, but come and pray. Listen, Sundays, we often think that we come to Sundays because, because this is where the work gets done. And yeah, every time the gospel is preached, the spirit of God communicates to his people and does work in our hearts. But it has been said before that ministry is the reward. Prayer is the work. Come in all of your beautiful weakness. Cast yourself at the mercies of Jesus. Know that you will not be turned away, that your prayers are heard, and that God will use his people to bring not just revival in the church, but revival in this world. It is a world apart from God and he is calling them into his kingdom. Let's get uncomfortable. Father, we are desperate for you. Lord, we are desperate for you to move. God, we confess our weakness to you right now. Lord, we are not able. Lord, we're not even able to change our own hearts. How are we gonna change the culture that we live in? Holy Spirit, we are desperate for you to move. We're desperate for you to come and fill this place. We're desperate for you to change our hearts. Lord, give us the courage to be honest about our weakness. Not so that we can be strengthened, but so that we can be trusting in your strength for everything that we need. God, come and move among us right now, Jesus. And bring revival to our hearts. Bring revival to our communities, Lord. Lord, make us uncomfortable as we look at our sin and confess that to you. Remind us that it was your willingness to be uncomfortable so that we might know your glory. Holy Spirit, fall on this place. Fill us up. And empower us to worship you in a way that our weakness is unable. In Jesus' name, amen.